ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Sebastian Darchin, welcome. Look, you're not a pop star, which makes this a little bit unusual, but um, you've written a book or you've co-written a book. You've been involved in a book called Electronic Cities, um, which looks at the electronic cities of the world. So first of all, what is your background to get you to a point to write this book? Um, yeah, good questions. Um, I'm um... Um, an urban planner so I'm teaching urban planning at university so I'm, I'm mainly an academic but I was always fascinated by um, you know rock bands when I was a teenager and you know um, especially a lot of bands from the UK and I was always curious about where they were from which city and if their music would reflect something about the city but I am yeah I'm teaching urban planning but I'm, I'm doing research about um, you know, culture in cities. So that's why um, I've been editing this book. Um, one of the editor, um, John Wilstead, is a musician. He was in the go-betweens and he's also an academic. So we kind of bonded on this topic of music and cities. Yeah. But what constitutes an electronic city? Um, it's, it's a bit of an abstract concept, but it's basically a scene in the city that is mainly about electronics. So the book was really about challenging this idea that because we are in the age of the internet, you can produce music anywhere. And we actually saying that, you know, place still matters. You know, there are infrastructure for an electronic uh, music scene. There are places, um, you know, um, artists need, need, need to play live. So this concept of place is still important. So an electronic city would be a place where you do uh, artists, DJ, but also, um, you know, musicians, but also, you know, producers. So a set of infrastructure that makes this um, electronic music, um, electronic city, sorry, work. Um, so Berlin would be a very good example of that. Um, and also, you know, some of the communities and, and kind of, um, people really organizing those events because we are looking really at underground electronic music thing in, in the, in the book, not, not, we're not looking too much about, you know, EDM and those big, big outside events like um, Tomorrowland or those kind of uh, big events. We're looking really at urban underground, small electronic music scene in a more poetic way. Electronic city is also all those places that are get 
alive at night, you know, places where you don't go during the day. So all this nightlife. I mean, you mentioned one of the commonalities of those cities, which is the underground, the nightlife and so on. What are the other commonalities between these cities? Um, there are, so you need cheap spaces for those kind of scenes to develop. So, um, you know, um, you know, Berlin after the, you know, the fall of the, the wall and, and also before that, you had a lot of spaces make, made available in Eastern Germany. So, you know, a lot of other clubs use those spaces in Sheffield as well. Because of the disindustrialization, there were a lot of warehouse being available. So Montreal also is a, is a, is a city that, um, you know, has a quite vibrant electronic music scene because it's, it's also pretty affordable to live in Montreal compared to other cities in North America. So affordability for artists to be in the city, but also the availability of spaces is very important. Um, so yeah, a lot of cities important. Yeah. I mean, you're mentioning there some sort of economic aspect, which has a commonality, maybe a political aspect, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which allows um, the space for the growth of, of clubs in that area and the growth then of electronic music. But are there other social, economic or political aspects in other cities which have allowed this growth? I was listening to a lot of your podcasts that you, you know, um, you've done with different artists. And I, also in the book, I was surprised because, you know, usually we say, oh, electronic music is just one draw and there is no um, connection with other genre. And actually we found a lot of connection with the punk music. You know, some punk rockers would become electronic um, artists later on. So I think there is also in electronic music um, this um, willingness to create change, even if there are no lyrics. So, um, you know, I think there is also this idea of it like in the punk music to create change as well. So you know, the, the fact that in Berlin it was a bit chaotic politically, I think artists use this opportunity to, um, you know, kind of create a new future in, in some ways. So, you know, we have a, a chapter on Iran and Iran is producing some amazing experimental um, and ambient music, you know. So I was surprised in the book to discover that, you know, that some of the author would, I think electronic music is very much also a way of saying things, even if there are no lyrics, so, yeah. I remember going to a lecture from Richard Florida and also reading one of his books, but I'm gonna read this out because his theory asserts that metropolitan regions with high concentrations of technology, workers, artists, musicians, uh, lesbians and gay men, and a group he describes as high bohemians exhibit a higher level of economic development, the creative class, he calls it. So how does his theory fit in with the electronic cities of the world? I think it does in a way, but in another way it doesn't. So I think this idea of tolerance works quite well. A lot of people, you know, um, so Florida is saying that, you know, a city with a high level of tolerance will attract artists and then they're going to be more creativity. And it's true for Berlin. You know, a lot of people are going to Berlin because there's this it's a very tolerant city and you know uh, even nick cave he's an australian artist you know i'm based in australia he said that that you know berlin changed kind of his perception of music he was not afraid to be himself so this would work in that sense but i think florida is we again we're talking about underground scene and i think richard florida is his approach doesn't really work for other underground music scenes because those scenes are not really 
part of the creative city. They're not often very, very supported by policies, apart from some cities, but often they're relying on, you know, people willing to organize those events. So there's not a lot of policy support. So what is then the difference between an electronic city and an electronic music scene? It's kind of the same. The, 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 the idea of electronic city is that every city in the world today has a kind of electronic scene in a way, being a small or a very important one like Berlin, but there are electronic music is everywhere, right? Um, but electronic music scenes, there are underground ones and, and more mainstream ones as well. There's not just one scene in a city. When you work in a city now, you know, you, you hear electronic music everywhere in the bars, even if it's just 8 p.m. at night. You know, it's not electronic music. It's like the, the sound ecology of the city. It's everywhere in every city. So that's also a bit the idea. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the sort of social economic and political factors which lead to the development of an electronic city or an electronic music scene. But what's the importance of an electronic music scene in terms of the social, economic and political movement of a city? So seen from the other side. Yeah, in terms of the economy, like I look at some numbers from Berlin and and there's something we call uh, techno tourism. So people doing tourism and they go from one city to another to experience a nightlife. And um, I think there were three millions uh, in 2018, three million tourists in Berlin just coming for the nightlife. So it's hard to evaluate, but you know, then they would buy accommodation, food, etc. So it's, 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 it's kind of a significant um, uh, income for, for the city. I mean, culturally, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's adding to the, you know, to the kind of richness of the city and the culture of the city, um, especially, you know, bands like early bands like uh, Cabaret Voltaire and all those experimental bands. I think it's, it's, it's an art form. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's not just electronic music to dance. It's also an art form in some sense. Germany has uh, a, a big art community and um, arts is a wide berth in Germany and you, you can get a lot of support in terms of what you're doing in, in this country. And I know as a you know former British person that uh, essentially in Britain, it's not as easy to get support. So how, how uh, or what are the differences between where these cities are in terms of the governments of those cities? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of disparities and differences. Um, um, so actually, I'm initially from France, and France has, a, has you, know, a, a, you know, a kind of a tradition to supporting the art. And now in Australia, it's, I live in Australia, and it's, it's a bit different. But, you know, like cities like, um, so Lyon in France, um, Lyon has been very good in supporting electronic music. Uh, there are some underground bands coming to the um, Festival des Lumières. Montreal is also very good. They are, they've managed to integrate those underground scene in Canada, their policies, they've got a lot of festivals. Um, so you're right, some cities are doing very well and some cities are not supporting the scene that well. Um, an example would be, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about cities, but Toronto had this music city policies where they, want, they, they decided to have a bribe and scene. But actually, the policy actually pushed back some of the, the clubs 
Montreal, Lyon, and other cities are, I've been able to, and also Sheffield, actually, I've been able to sustain those things for a long time. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting how you divide the book into these three sections, historical, established, and emerging. Why did you divide the book in that way? And um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about those, those divisions and what they really mean? We did want to talk about the early hubs like you know um, Dusseldorf, all the German and, 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 and British cities. We didn't, want, we didn't want to include Detroit and Chicago because a lot of work has been produced on the cities. But obviously those cities are the initial hubs for electronic music. And then you know one of the editors, Damien, um, is, is in Hong Kong and you know he's an academic there. And in Hong Kong you've got a, a scene that is very different but just emerging. So we thought oh you know, we should have different section, you know, um, and the, the established scenes are, you know, like Montreal and Toronto. Um, so Montreal, you know, this artist, Grime, she, she went totally global. She's a big superstar. Um, um, in Toronto, there is Dead Mao 5, this very famous DJ. So those established in creating, created real, you know, electronic music superstars. So we thought, oh, we, we also need to talk about them. <laughs> yeah, and, and obviously there is a history, you know, electronic music has evolved. I mean, there are 150 sub-genres of electronic music today, you know. Um, but initially it was more experimental, you know, with um, bands like, um, you know, Cabaret Voltaire and all those bands. Um, but now, you know, it's, it's very diverse. So, yeah, we needed a structure for the book. Okay, let's go on to the, the historical cities. One of them is uh, Dusseldorf, which obviously yeah. living in Cologne, I know fairly well because it's just up the road. So what role has the historical combination between art and music played in the development of an electronic scene for Dusseldorf? Dusseldorf um, is... Um, you know, it's kind of a, it's a bit like Vienna, you know, there is this tradition of classical music in the city. So there are schools. Um, so there are already an infrastructure there. And um, Rudy Esch and Eric Stein, who wrote the chapter, really explained that it was really a creative milieu uh, in the city, different type of art interacting. So innovation came from that. And it's probably also... Um, because it's not it's not a huge city, it's kind of compact as well. So you know, the urban form enabled uh, people to mingle and exchange ideas. So that's that's a way I would see it. You know, I mean, band like Kraftwerk, all the the, the members were born post-war, um, uh, and very early post-war in 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 a lot of cases. So what role uh, did the sort of aftermath of the war, the destruction that the war bring, um, on the development of Dusseldorf in terms of being an electronic city? Maybe not that much as in Berlin, the destruction and, and the availability of spaces, but it's more like, um, again, I've listened to your podcast, you know, about um, um, Wolfgang Fluor, and he was really, um, and it's also in the chapter in a book, uh, uh, Electronic Cities, you know, Kraftwerk and all those um, people, they were really finding art and music as a way to forget about the world, to creating, to create something beautiful. And they were looking for, um, yeah, just to escape this horrible past and create something beautiful, something German, but something that 
you know, very positive. I mean, a lot of their music is sort of music, as particularly Wolfgang Fleur today, I feel like, is a connection between his music and architecture. It's the architecture of music in some way. So does Dusseldorf, as a sort of new architecturally quite beautiful city, play a role in that development as well? And it's actually the, the, the theme of a new book on which I'm, I'm working on. It's, yeah, of course, the built environment influenced people, but it's very subjective, you know. It might influence one musician and another musician would, wouldn't be influenced by the art, architecture. So there's also the subjectivity of the artist, how he, how he or she responds to the environment. Um, so... I agree with you, like the new architecture probably has a role, but it might be, it might not be for every musician. And there is a particular German identity uh, to craft work, which you bring up in the book as well, isn't there? Yes, um, it's, it's, I think it's, it makes the band very appealing. Um, and, 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 you know, that's why Rudi Esch and Eric in the chapter, they call craft art, Kraftwerk a global brand, you know, it's got such a German strong identity. Um, you know, I've read that even the Foo Fighters, the band, at some point in, they were dressing like them, you know, for, for one of their uh, tour they had. So it was, it's really a band that's, yeah, had a, a big influence in the, in the pop history, uh, but still they're very German in the way they're dressed and the music they're playing. It's, yeah, it's hard to define why they're German, but they definitely are. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. One artist that I talked to was uh, Westbam, and he jokingly, but when people say jokes, there's always something in it, but he jokingly suggested that he played a role in bringing down uh, the Berlin Wall. And I think, um, effectively, electronic music played a role in bringing together this is, I think, 100% certain, bringing together the youth of the East uh, and the West. Westbam is, is, you know, this, this kind of DJ superstar, um, and he was also willing to create change. This is a point I made before, you know, comparable to the punk, um, the punk rockers. Actually, he was also a punk I've, I've read before. So, yeah, I think he played a role, you know, he played in every... Um, every um, uh, love parade in Berlin, so you know he was there every year. So I think, yeah, he, he definitely played a role, um, not politically, but with his music and kind of like he's saying, you know, uh, having an impact on the fact that the Berlin Wall would fall. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. Do you think Berlin is still a magnet for electronic artists? Yes, Why? it is. Why? Um, because it's got all this infrastructure. It's got a lot of producers there, um, famous names. Um, it's still not too um, not too expensive to live there compared to other cities, um, you know, Paris, London. So, you know, young artists can still come to Par to Berlin to live. So, yeah, it, it's still it has both, you know, a great club infrastructure with famous clubs, but also it's very innovative. It has this, those kind of subculture that are nurturing underground scene. So, a lot of different factors makes Berlin still a, a magnet for electric music. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because it was once a divided city, as, as, as you've mentioned. Um, 
it was also a city during the height of the Cold War that so, you know, the expectations of, of young people living in that city was like, we really haven't probably got a future. So that I think plays a role in terms of what they're doing. It was also a city where if you didn't do national service uh, in Germany or you wanted to get out of it, then you just registered, your, registered yourself as living in Berlin. We talked about Westbam a little bit, but also you've mentioned Mark Reeder a couple of times already. Um, and Mark Reeder was originally uh, from Manchester, um, sort of ensconced in the beginnings of uh, the scene in Manchester before he came to Berlin in the late mm -hmm. 70s, I think it was. So uh, what do you feel that his role has been in the development of the electronic music scene in Berlin? An important role for sure. And, he's, you know, he was quite adventurous as well. You know, he would he would go to uh, East Germany and, 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 you know, kind of set up um, secret gigs. And uh, so, yeah, I think he, he's got an important role and he's, he's, you know, he's still very active in the scene. Um, you know, I can't really compare with other people, but definitely he, he was a pioneer in, in, in that sense, you know, taking risk, willing to really, um, and also the same idea of creating change, you know, he, he's talking about that in the, in the chapter in the book, you know, um, just being innovative, you know, doing something different. Uh, he even mentioned in the interview in the book that at some point he was willing to recreate, you know, this iconic um, Sex Pistols gig in, that happened in, in Manchester in 76. He was willing to recreate this kind of catalyst event for the underground scene. So he was, you know, a pioneer in that sense, I would say, yeah. I mean, another, I think, aspect that Mark Reeder has been able to bring because of his background in Manchester and his connections, he provided sort of a connective tissue between two countries, with Berlin being a sort of island uh, at that point because of it being, you know, uh, uh, an isolated uh, city during the Cold War. Um, he sort of uh, provided some sort of um, connection between Manchester and Berlin, which is for artists um, very interesting. I want to get on to Sheffield because Sheffield fascinates me, uh, particularly because it, uh, the interview that I did with Martin Ware, where he talks about growing up within the sound of this clang of the steelworks. And um, for me, the he's also a person who connects architecture because he's very interested in in architecture and gives lectures on architecture and talks about certain buildings in in Sheffield so first question about Sheffield is why did Sheffield become an epicenter for electronic music well I, I think it's it's again some innovative individuals that um, took advantage of the spaces available but contrary to um, to Dusseldorf, you didn't have a, a big tradition of music in Sheffield. I mean, you had uh, Joe Cocker, um, the, the, um, the singer, but you didn't have all this you know, classical music and all these things before. So, yeah, it, it's a bit of a question mark what, what, why it did happen in, in, in Sheffield. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the guy from um, Cabaret Voltaire, he was um, saying that... Um, they were trying to invent again something different in, in a kind of a depressing an industrial environment, but with something positive. You know, Joy Division is like the depressing post-punk from Manchester, but Human League and Cabaret Voltaire, they're more positive, you know, uh, in terms of 
the output and the music. So, yeah, I think the the landscape and um, maybe the boredom as well um, in this city um, kind of uh, motivated some, you know, creative people to start a, to start an experiment with electronic music. And then also the the Sheffield uh, Council was pretty uh, smart in terms of reusing spaces. Um, so it kind of helped as well. But you know what you've said about um, the, the, the noise of the industry, you know, um, in the chapter there is an, um, an interview with a, an, um, a young musician and he's saying he thinks it's bullshit. <laughs> for maybe this industrial noise would be, you know, true for uh, Martin Ware, but not true for another. Um, it's very subjective. I mean, I think there's a different generational thing because of Martin's generation. It was probably something which was there uh, yes. constantly. And I'm not sure how big the steelworks in Sheffield are because they were depleted after a, after a while. Martin Ware mentioned, and you've touched on it as well, the political and social aspects of that, of that city. Sheffield was a bit of an outsider uh, city, um, uh, particularly... Um, I think once Thatcher came to power in, in 79. So it was like Sheffield and Liverpool were really sort of uh, alien cities for that government. Their political affiliations in that city were to support um, the people in that city, as you said, to sort of uh, uh, develop. Uh, one of the local council's initiative was this meat whistle, uh, which was some sort of I, I don't know whether to describe it as a, as, a, as a sort of social club or something where young musicians could meet. How important was that to the development of the Sheffield scene? And how important is that in other cities around the world? This place was important, you know, like um, artists would refer to it as a mental space, you know, a space where they could exchange ideas. So, you know, those places are important. And, and Sheffield has been using this... Um, temporary event notices so you can actually um, turn you know um, an industrial building into a, a club or, or a bar you know with you know the, with a, a drinking license and so on so this kind of worked very well for Sheffield so this kind of place like you're mentioning um, I've been popping up and again this idea that you know electric music needs places it's not just about the digital people need to mingle and exchange ideas so I mean, one of the themes of what you've uh, been talking about today and obviously what's uh, what's in the book is uh, the aspect of how gentrification has really, in a sense, uh, been against the development because, you know, those free spaces that existed, that area of no man's land in between. Dusseldorf, after the war that would have been demolished, which was, was sort of leaves areas where people can use mm. Sheffield in in the to the same extent where it was a very poor city um, yeah. and there were areas that could be used so how much does gentrification change yeah the electronic cities in the world well the example is this the cover of the books is uh, club 414 in in the suburb of London it doesn't exist anymore but for 20 years it was the place of acid techno so an underground scene Gentrification is, is kind of, I mean, the prices are rising and then in terms of real estate, it, it's not possible even for, I mean, 
for the owner of the club to actually rent the place anymore. So they just have to close. Okay, I want to end with something because, you know, you talked about this split the book into three parts, but these sort of future uh, cities, the cities that are sort of leading the way into the future, they're also cities that have experienced gentrification. There are cities that are in full uh, development. So what is different about them from the historical cities? What has changed and why are they also becoming a centre for electronic music then? We had the example, the emerging things was Iran. So Iran was emerging and, and you know, Iranian artists are producing this amazing ambient music because actually the government doesn't see electronic music as a threat. They don't like rock and roll and hard rock, but electronic music is seen as kind of intellectual. So that's why they're not, they're not um, kind of after those artists. Um, but Hong Kong has a scene, but, you know, and there is a noise musician. There are probably 15 of them doing noise music, you know, experiential music. So they are underground in that sense, and it's kind of an art form. So to answer your question, I think a lot of the emerging things are relying on DJs are this, those kind of, um, uh, you know, early scene where more about, you know, the post-punk being, becoming more electronic. So they were more like bands really than, than DJs, right? You know, Cabaret Voltaire, Human League, they're more like bands, right? Well, thanks for writing the book or being involved in the writing of the book with these other contributors. Um, you know, I found it fascinating uh, how these cities have, uh, have developed and how the sort of political, social and economic aspects of these cities play uh, a role in that um, development. So, uh, Sebastian, thanks again for giving this interview. Thanks for having me, Steve. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Motts. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends.